So thank you for joining me on another episode of the Drop-In CEO Podcast. You know, did I ever tell you I truly love podcasting and it's not just to put out my thoughts, but the amazing people that I get to know. So this one was an interesting one. I cannot wait for you to listen to this entire episode with Tim Trompeduck. He was nominated by somebody that works for him. And kudos and thank you to Jeremy Haas, somebody also in my network that says, hey, you got to talk to this person. He's an amazing leader and definitely worth bringing his insights to my community as his as well. And so what's really, really interesting is we get into this conversation about his journey to entrepreneurship, the ups, the downs. It's not pretty all the time, but truthfully, at the end of the day, it's not just the work he does. And by the way, he is in a super interesting industry, but it's the legacy that he leaves because he talks about in the soundbite that, yeah, he can roll up his sleeves and get right down to working with his people 10, 12, 14 hour days. But at the end of the day, it's more important to understand who they are as people, what gets them excited and what makes them tick. Because understanding that and establishing those real connection points are what's going to get you through the ups and the downs of doing business and being your own owner. So this is so full of insights. I am grateful to have been introduced to Tim. Listen to this little soundbite and get ready for the rest of the interview. You will not be disappointed. How do you get a bunch of people to work together that you don't directly control, right? Like, how do you build that team And part of it is you just have to understand, A, what drives people, like what gets them fired up about a task, what makes them interested and want to spend more time than they're technically paid for 40 hours a week to do, but also legitimately take an interest in people, take an interest in their work, try to understand the complexities of their job, but also ask them a little bit more about what drives them personally. Like, what do you love doing outside of work? And to me, that's always fascinating, right? It's like, I play a lot of sports, like sports is just the funnest thing to me. That's always driven me throughout my career. And so my employees have multiple times now given me the feedback that they really like working with me because I walk into work and it's not work, 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 work. We talk about all the things that people enjoy and what drives them. Welcome to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I'm Deb Coviello, and as the drop-in CEO, I drop into businesses and assume the CEO role to enhance the human element and increase the results they achieve. This podcast is about bringing you conversations with expert guests who have achieved their greatest results built on a strong foundation of purpose, values, and elevating people. If you're a business leader, entrepreneur, or even just getting started in business, Join us as we build the skills you need to achieve your goals. Hello, I am Deb Cobiello, founder of The Drop-In CEO, and I am grateful you have joined us on another episode of the podcast where I get to speak to amazing leaders, CEOs, and share their insights with you. If you do like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, tell others so we can continue to bring you great programming. And today, it is my honor to introduce to you Tim Trompenduck. He is the founder and CEO of Torqued, a tech-first motorsports distributor and an angel investor, and has a track record of rapidly scaling cross-functional teams in various technology-enabling industries. And more about him, he has a bias to action, 
always looking for opportunities, seeks to influence teams to drive the business forward and they can achieve their best results. So Tim, it is my honor to welcome you onto the show. Hi Deb, thanks for having me. So it's going to be a pleasure and shout out to Jeremy who introduced us. I also met him through networking. He said, you got to meet this Tim guy. He may be great for the show. So for my listeners, he's a CEO of a company that's growing a startup. He's got that entrepreneurial spirit. He has a varied, interesting background. And I know he's got some lessons for us in there about entrepreneurship and leadership. So I think this is going to be an amazing conversation. So Tim, the floor is yours. Please share with us whatever you like about yourself personally, but also that career journey that brought you to the work that you're doing now. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So I guess, I mean, I think the first thing to start with is I took a very technical path initially in my career. I decided I wanted to study computer science, went to college, did that, loved it, was, I guess, a decent student. Also sort of always made sure to have a good amount of fun and meet people and and learn more about life in college rather than just sort of the book and, and technical skills. And certainly learned a lot and worked hard. It's not like I was a slacker, but wasn't the Rhodes Scholar, let's put it that way. So after college, after having studied computer science, I was a software engineer and had this great plan for my career to go to B-school after a few years and then be in management, do management, whatever that meant to a 21 or 22-year-old. And, uh, you know, life happens a little differently. And so my situation was that in the 2000s, uh, companies were, after I worked for an optical networking company, they were laying off people and I was not a U.S. citizen. So long story short, you know, I stayed at that company for a while because I needed to get a green card. And to me, that was the most important thing is that I can have permanent residency in the United States because I wanted to stay here. And so I arguably stayed a few extra years, but you know, I got some good experience, certainly changed roles and grew in my responsibilities at that company. But then, yeah, I went, went off to business school. And again, a business school had a plan. The plan was, I am going to become a management consultant because management consultant, you work for one of the big three companies and you then you know do your two years there and then you slot in to a senior management role at some cool, awesome, big company and you have lots of power. That was the plan. Well, again, things didn't like quite work out. I was really picky about where and what and where to get an internship. And then frankly, it didn't work out, right? I, I failed at getting an internship at frankly, the two companies that I wanted to work at in the three cities, right? So I was shooting for the stars and missed. And I came out to the Valley, to Silicon Valley, and I happened to stay in a house in Menlo Park with two guys that had just graduated Stanford GSB. And this was 08, oh, sorry, this was 07. And they were building Facebook apps. And I was like, what? That is cool. I was on Facebook, student at the time. And so I had a Facebook account. It was you know, limited to students back then. And I was like, this is cool stuff. I got to go do this. So I had an internship at Cisco at the time, which was just a matter for me to you know, be out here in the Valley. And I said then and there, I'm not doing management consulting. I'm not doing general management. I'm doing this at the time for B-schoolers, crazy thing of entrepreneurship. I'm going to join some sort of or entrepreneurship and definitely also meaning startups. So I'm going to go work for some startup. So I honestly was way ahead of the curve in terms of B-schoolers, you know, now seeking out startups as one of the top destinations between, you know, other than finance and, and management consulting. It's in most top tier B-schools, it's probably somewhere one, two or three of careers that students want to pursue. So I went and did that, didn't do any on-campus recruiting and then got a job two weeks before I graduated. Moved out here, worked for 
one Facebook apps company, then quickly got recruited six months later to another one and, you know, violated all those rules of like, oh, you should stay at a job for a year. You know, it's good for your career. No, that's wrong. That's wrong. Like if there's a right, the right opportunity is there, take it. And it was absolutely the right opportunity for me because I ended up joining a company called Zynga, which was probably about 150 people at the time. And then it was just a rocket ship from there, right? Farmville came on board. They bought words with friends. It was just a crazy time. And it was like party time in 2010, 2011, which when everyone else was not so much partying at the time. Right? So it was just a kind of this weird company to be at, be at. But it taught me so many lessons. And it taught me a lot of lessons also on humility. And I got humbled a bunch of times, right? Like a company scales and you're responsible for 15 things. And then you get a manager slotted in above you. And then they tell you to get rid of the five things. And you're like, well, those are mine. But then you kind of realize, well, I can do those other 10 things better now. And so it's just a ton of lessons around that, around how to effectively manage roadmaps. And just to be clear, I was a product manager back then. It, It just taught me tons of lessons on ownership. And the cool thing about being a product manager, I can kind of pause at some point here, is product manager is... You have an amazing responsibility and a really huge responsibility for defining the features of a product, listening to the customers and so forth, but also in getting the team to build that. And it's a multifaceted team. It's engineers, it's designers, it's QA testers, and it's a whole bunch of other stakeholders, which may include a legal team, an operational team, management, obviously, communications. I mean, it it varies greatly, but you don't have any of these people under your direct command. They are assigned to you. The benefit is that you don't have to do the people management, which is honestly sometimes the most annoying part. And so you don't have to do people management, but you are responsible for their work output. And so it's really, I think, cool position. And a lot of people want to do it. And just, you know, through learning by doing, there's no like degree in this, like by through learning by doing, I think I became pretty good at it. And, you know, did my time at Zynga, spent four and a half years there, tried some startups, didn't work out. And then, you know, since then I joined and or consulted at a variety of companies and in different sectors. Then at some point I said, that's kind of enough. I don't want to do this anymore as a product manager and I want to do my own thing. And so, you know, I kind of took a a side hustle at the time, turned it into what's, what's now Torqued. So yeah, that's kind of the path I took to Torqued and, you know, just learned a, a lot of lessons on soft, like really soft skills in some ways, like on around people management and rallying teams together. Because like I said, I left, you know, that one job after six months, there's here in the Valley more today than ever, you have to figure out how to retain talent and you have to just be a good manager and, and have the team fired up to, you're like, all right, we're going to climb this mountain. We're going to do it together. So what's really, really cool about this is that all the while you say, I'm going to do this and you did it and I'm going to do this and I did it. Oh, that didn't work. I'm going to move on. And I just really want to understand you, Tim, as a person. Some people would just be knocked down and say, okay, I'm just going to take a corporate job and do X or take the safe route. And you always just seemed, (laughs) maybe there's more, to have just this can do. Well, this didn't work. I'm going to go here. What is it about you or your upbringing that gave you that resilience to keep trying new things, build up that resume and that skill set to then say, okay, I'm now going to put a stake in the ground and be the entrepreneur. Tell me more about yourself. 
you know, I've had some really lucky things in my life. So my dad paid for college, right? I left college without student loans. Like that's a giant advantage, right? So I didn't sit there every month being like, you know, shoot, I got to pay off this college loan. That said, I, I did pay for my grad school, but you know, I'd been a working adult at that point. But even there, I set up my life that I was certainly not sort of paycheck to paycheck, but I knew that at certain times I would want to take a risk where I maybe wouldn't take a salary or where I just wanted to take some time off to chill out. And, you know, I've basically always gone through these cycles of four to five years of something super intense and then chill out for a little bit. And chill out doesn't necessarily mean that I sit on the beach. Actually, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means that I have flexibility to pursue other interests. And oftentimes that would include doing consulting work on the side. So my advice to the extent that you can, and again, I was like super fortunate in many ways, and I will fully acknowledge that I would encourage everybody to set themselves up such that you create in some sense financial flexibility, but there are also certainly other flexibilities as well. That's, I think, super important is that you don't want to be dependent on very specific things in your life such that you can take some risks. So there's something that was really interesting. And again, you're a little younger than me, but older than some, you have some experience. But one of the things I'm hearing is that you did the work, you did well, some jobs, you stayed longer, some jobs, you stayed less, but it was always new experience, new skill, new adventure, new intense project. And nowadays I'm finding that some people that have come to me about, Hey, what do you think about my resume? I'm job hopping a little bit. I'm like 1.5 years here, three years here, then six months, then three months, then only nine months. And I'm telling people, don't worry about it. First of all, (laughs) the world has changed. The economy has changed, but there's no shame in being in shorter roles with high intensity, providing value, learning a lot. And yes, it's a little unstable for companies, but I honestly believe that it's okay to be a little bit more fractional in how we serve and the experiences we get. That'd be a little selfish for ourselves. And I love how you seem to be resilient, stayed someplace, but then you built your resume, went to places that gave you the opportunity to give back and also realize some gains as well. And to add to that, to build on, honestly, like I fault people for staying at jobs too long because that's opportunity cost. Like I had a consulting engagement that was supposed to be three months, I believe. And six weeks in, I was like, I'm not comfortable. I don't agree with any of this. And I'm not being given you know, like the room to operate that I was expected to give. I'm out. I'm done. And I don't even know what the sort of consequences of that were. But again, it comes back to the flexibility. I wasn't wedded to this job. I had perfect ability to leave. And for me, yes, it was just a three months thing, but if you truly believe that a job wasn't the right fit for you, you should be able to very defensively always say to anyone that asks the question of why did you leave after six months, you would say, this was not the right fit for me. It was not for right for my career. I wasn't learning. I wasn't X, Y, Z. It'll always be defensible. What you really not want to have is, I was like, oh, I stayed a year and a half at this place. And I don't know, I wasn't sure. Like just... Six months is a long enough time to determine if this thing works or not and just cut bait, is my opinion. It's interesting. I just wrote an article about when you're having difficult career decisions to take a job or leave a job, three principles I wrote and it came to me as fast, does it, is it align with your values? Can I spend time with my family, have the flexibility I want? Does it serve my needs? Maybe you have some short-term financial location, being near family, et cetera, needs, and then purpose because sometimes it can be meet your needs 
and it's okay for family and flexibility, but I'm meant to do something else, not this. So kudos. But I want to really get into the work that you're doing now. Your company is so interesting. I would love to know the genesis of what it started as in terms of high-tech auto parts and a software company. So what are you, distribution or a software or both? Please tell me. <laughs> Depends on who's asking, I guess is the answer. <laughs> okay. And all of the above. No, I mean, I think the focus and in terms of if we think about Torque being part of the performance aftermarket or the general aftermarket industry, aftermarket auto parts industry, we are a distributor at the most simplistic level, but really we are a technology powered distributor. And more than that, we are able to do omni-channel sales, meaning we can sell through any channel, but all on the same platform. And that essentially for the purpose of this industry as a tech company. But what was the impetus or what drove you to pursue this? It's the only way I can build a business is the short answer. But the long answer is, and this is kind of what I mentioned with the side hustle earlier, when I was working at my tech jobs, and to be clear, I, you know, I had some really great managers. I had always like great flexibility, just kind of could do generally what I wanted. It, was, it really was quite cool. And I've always kind of been kind of a bit of a gearhead that likes wrenching on cars and more specifically building cars, what most people would call kit cars. And so I had this like crazy car that I was building and I bought some carbon fiber seats from the UK and I had to buy them from the UK because there was no US distributor for it or US seller for it. And so I was perfectly comfortable doing a transaction with the UK and pay with a credit card and whatever, and they ship it, it's fine. But then I was like, oh, wait a minute, if no one's selling these in the US, maybe I should just do that for other people building this car or similar cars. And so I just decided on the sides to import a few seats, stick them in a storage unit, nights and weekends, just sort of frankly, not great customer service because I couldn't answer the phones during the daytime or respond to stuff. And, you know, sell a few here and there. And yeah, I did that more and more. And it was never a huge business because I was farming, if you will, right? I wasn't like actively selling the seats that, in that sense. But then, yeah, I've kind of got this like natural break in my career where I just decided I wanted to move on from the company that I was working at at the time. And I thought, you know what, let me work on something that I really do think is a lot of fun. And I've never worked in, which is on aftermarket performance parts. And so the model that came about is let's double down on this brand. It's called Tillet Racing Seats. Let's start doing that more professionally, but let's replicate that model of being the US distributor in most cases or preferably exclusively for foreign brands, mostly from Europe that don't have U.S. distribution yet. And the rationale, again, kind of what I said earlier is, you know, Americans want to buy from Americans, want fulfillment from the U.S., want to pay with a credit card, just have an easy transaction. And that's what we're enabling. So we've got a roster of five, six, seven exclusive or partially exclusive brands that we import. And like I said, the, the default for me to build a business is through technology. So as I sort of started working in this industry, I realized that there are the industry of automotive parts is, is that there are some really kind of arcane ways in which companies interchange with each other. It somewhat starts with a purchase order process for you to order parts. That is like not necessarily too much need to re reinvent the wheel on because it's not a particularly frequent task. But things that are way more complicated is moving product data around. So having accurate data about what a part is, what the origin, and then pricing, inventory availability, order processing, like all of that stuff has generally been, there are some standards around it, but they're pretty clunky and old school. And just the way a, the value chain sort of interacts with each other from 
manufacturer to wholesaler to point of sale is effectively paper-based. I mean, digital paper, right? It's like, it's a lot of PDFs and a lot of files that get emailed around. There isn't really API connections. And the world that I come from is everything's an API. You do server-to-server communication, you do syncing, you do this in real time. You don't do this in like every 24 hours or every week because data gets stale and then you're out of sync, right? And what ends up happening is people buy stuff and it's not in stock. So it's clearly a problem, but why you? Why you to solve this problem? You know, I don't know. Perhaps like I walked into this industry and it's one of those classic things. I had a number of people tell me, you have no idea what you're doing in this industry. And I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, I really believe you on that one. (laughs) So it takes an outsider's view, I think, to rethink things a little bit. And the technology I've built in this company for the purposes of Silicon Valley is not transformative. This is not difficult stuff. But for the purpose that I'm serving, it is very, very different and very unique. And the way it manifests itself for us is that we are extraordinarily efficient. We have such low staff and we still have a warehouse here in the Bay Area, which is some of the most expensive real estate you can rent. And we have employees here, which is like some of the most expensive employees you can hire. So we have these crazy costs. We're very profitable. And we definitely have very obvious ways in which we could become more profitable which I just alluded to, but all of the reason that's the case is because we've built a technology platform that narrowly meets our needs. We don't rely on any third parties. We've built the entire system ourselves. And therefore we can take orders from any channel, from Amazon, from Shopify stores. So all our dealers who have Shopify big commerce or WooCommerce stores, we directly manage their inventory. We import orders from those stores. We shove all of that through the same processing pipeline we can route to multiple warehouses. We can route to external warehouses. We can any to any, basically. And we do this with really pretty minimal staff. So the inner workings of this is really cool. And for the techno geek and the software, this is really cool what you've done. But what really matters at the end of the day are your clients that use this warehouse system software that you've done to have easier access to funnel their joy of working on cars and European cars and things like that. What have your clients said that leverage this business model to feed their soul and what they're doing? Yeah. I mean, I think they're all amazed by the ease in which they can load new products. And I'll explain that in a second. And then they're simply also just impressed by our operational capability to fill full orders. And those are in some ways two different things, but the way you would typically load products onto your store, and not all of our dealers are e-commerce sites. Some of them are more kind of brick and mortar businesses, but the bulk of them are e-commerce sites. And this this warehouse as a service concept we've created is mostly addressed to those. So traditionally, if you need to get products onto your store, onto your e-com store, you would either list them one at a time. So you'd be like cutting and pasting or from a load sheet, like an Excel sheet that somebody gives you. That's laborious work. And yes, you can farm that out to somebody whatnot and you know, in a lower cost jurisdiction, but that's painful. You can also import full load sheets. So you can like take the data that a supplier gives you. It might come from the distributor. It might come from the manufacturer and you munge it and alternate you know, and convert it to your format that your store accepts and import it. It's really painful. Instead, what we do is you sign up with us, you connect your store to us, and then with one click, you can upload a product to your store. So with one click, you can say, I want this product listed on my store. We transfer all the data over. And from there on, the extra cool thing is we actually keep your inventory in stock. 
in sync rather. And we do this in real time. And this is kind of the thing that's different. And this is where our, or in my background as a technologist and where we think we're truly a technology company is this is done real time, meaning within a couple of seconds. So if we see a sale of a given product on any of our dealer stores or any other channel that we manage, we get that notification for that order for that part. We immediately update the inventory everywhere else, wherever else that part is housed. And that's done in a second or two upon order import. That is completely different from how everyone else does it, which is there is a lot of selling of like what I call sell and pray. So dealers just have product listed on their website, they sell it and they don't know if it's in stock, which is not a business that I like running because it's a terrible customer experience. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort for your CS staff to like, oh, call the supplier up. Do you have it? No, they don't. Hey, customer, they don't have it. Do you want to buy this part? And they go, no, you said it was in stock, right? So like, that's not a business I want to run. And it requires a lot of staff. And so this technology we've built takes out that staff. And I'm not, I'm not like anti-staffing, right? Staff is important, but we want to deploy it on the right high value tasks. And that's not a high value task. But I want to ask you a question because I am trying to glean out the impact to your business model. How are you impacting the lives of those people who are trying to sell their product? So you are like revolutionizing an industry or are you creating a software technology that first you're doing it in the automotive parts industry, but you can apply it to maybe other industries for which their business models are clunky, inventory, et cetera, very labor intensive. Which direction are you going? The automotive we're pushing out the warehouse as a service model. I'm just curious where this is going. Do you want to invest into this in another industry? <laughs> I mean, I like your thinking. So. No, but I'm just saying you're an entrepreneur. Yeah. So what's the vision? Yeah, it's a cool thing now. You're having fun. But where does this thing really go, Endgame? No, it's a great question. It's absolutely spot on question. And I don't have a good answer of it right now. Darn it, because I'm playing the angel investor. Yeah. You have people that do the Shark Tank pitch to you. Pitch me. Where's this thing going? Yeah. So it's interesting. So we had recently a call for a potentially a product in the, what I would call an adjacent industry. It's kind of the same. It's kind of not. It's more in the like motorbike space. And we, we haven't really dealt with any motorbikes, but it's a foreign company and they might want to have us sell the part. And we're kind of scratching our heads. We're like, well, we don't do motorbikes. And then we go, well, wait a minute. Like we could easily do this, like in our existing system, like it's all set up so that we could bring on XYZ motorbike dealer and they only would get access to this one brand. They wouldn't get access to everything else. So we could easily do it on the same system. Now, would I do this for full supplies? I don't know. But your, your question is spot on. Like we could literally take this platform and think about it. Yeah. And duplicate it and run in another industry. Okay. So sometimes an outside view, sometimes advice or thoughts, inspiration can come from below part of the team or just somebody outside. This is amazing. So I want to start bringing this to a close, but here you are taking a big risk on yourself. You got employees, you got partners and everything. So I guess my last question is like, what keeps you up at night as a leader? Because I think it's also important that humility, what keeps you up at night? Because also for myself, I'm trying to learn as I try to service senior leaders, CEOs, et cetera, problems that maybe I can solve. What keeps you up at night building this business that is now three, four years old? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, I'll answer a little bit indirectly. Like one of the things that I've appreciated the most in running this business is that I have a staff now, I have a sizable staff. I own the company, I started the company, but moreover, I'm providing a livelihood for them. And it's so much more visceral and direct when 
it is your own company and you still are the one that ultimately runs payroll every couple of weeks. It's a way more abstract thing when you're an employee of a startup that's raised tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, right? There, it's like another department and, you know, it's a greater, bigger company. It's, it's, way, it's way more abstract. Like right here in, in that running a small business, like you really feel it. But the way that really manifests itself and what I, I guess, and the most positive thing keeps me up at night is that people love working with me. And I don't mean to like be like chest thumpy here, but, and it comes down to like the weirdest, simplest, smallest things that I just naturally default to. And this is part of the training of how do you get a bunch of people to work together that you don't directly control? How do you build that team? And part of it is you just have to understand what drives people, like what gets them fired up about a task, like what makes them interested and want to spend more time than they're technically paid for 40 hours a week to do. But also, I don't mean to say I'm become friends with people, but I legitimately take an interest in people. I take an interest in their work. I try to understand the complexities of their job such that I can push the right buttons. And I know when I'm asking for too much, but I also ask them a little bit more about them, what drives them personally. Like, what do you love doing outside of work? And to me, that's always fascinating, right? It's like, I play a lot of sports. Like sports is just the funnest thing to me, team sports and individual sports, really more individual sports now, but that's always driven me throughout my career. And so my employees have multiple times now given me the feedback that they really like working with me because to me, I walk into work and it's not work, 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 work. We talk about all the things that people enjoy and what drives them. And I think, again, I'm not inviting them to my barbecues. I could, like, wouldn't be an issue to me, but really wouldn't, honestly. But it's just more of a matter of we're building this together and I'm fully transparent also about the things that I go through and the, the things that are happening in my house. Like my son walked in the other day, classic Zoom bomb. He's four. He, wore, well, he was wearing only his underwear. Previously, he was just wearing pants. Now, then he was just wearing underwear. And it's just funny. And I, everyone else thinks it's funny. So that to me is important, is building that personal relationship with my employees. So what I like about this and for people listening, Tim and I got on a little bit. We're just getting to know each other a little bit more. And we have somewhat of a common background. We were at one point in time in startup optical networking companies. And the company that I work for, Italian, there were two different presidents or CEOs. One, because all the software network hardware engineers were working through the night. It was one big family. They say they remember him walking around with a cart with ice cream at like two o'clock in the morning, servicing these people and appreciating what they're doing. And then another CEO, I remember he was dropped in with from the private equity company and he came to our level. He rolled up his sleeves. He worked with myself and the director of operations, just trying to get the startup going and teaching us new skills and sincerely taking an interest in us. Those are the CEOs and leaders that people remember. So I'm going to bring this to a close. We could probably talk on and on, but any last closing thoughts that you just want to share with anybody who might be listening or any thoughts they can take away? Yeah, I think speaking about like, what does it take to take the plunge of entrepreneurship? I don't want anyone to walk away from this thinking like, Tim, just follow this passion. Like that platitude of you should follow your dreams. I don't actually think that's particularly great advice. I think there's a lot of sort of like caveats and and hedges in there. And it speaks to a lot of things I was saying earlier that you should take risks, but they need to be calculated and you need to have a stopgap on it. And so like in my case as well, I'm married. My wife works a regular job at a a tech company here. It's a W2 employee. That's the only way I mean to put it. 
And this was a risk that we decided we were going to take. She had had some time off for obvious reasons because we have a son. And we've just made that a long period of time because it's, it's only the right thing. And then we decided that I would build something big that wasn't going to pay me a salary while she had a salary and benefits, right? So you have to sort of, and that's a lucky position to be in, right? But there are some other consequences through that. I want people to think about is, when you want to take the plunge, I think it's great to really pursue something that you love doing and are passionate about and where you perhaps have a unique skill set or background, but make it a controlled risk where you know you have an out. And I knew that my out, if this thing wouldn't work out, if Torque wouldn't work out, is I would go get another job as a product manager. And I knew that wouldn't be an, an issue here, given the people I know and what my background and, and track record is. So, Tim... I am sincerely excited that Jeremy introduced us, that you are a passionate, very intelligent entrepreneur, but have a lot of experience, some hard knocks, et cetera. But I just love the resiliency that you have, as well as some of the advice that you've shared with our listeners. I just want to wish you continued success. If anybody wants to reach out to Tim, we'll have all of his various contact information in the show notes. But I just can't wait to see where you're going to go with this. I just want to wish you great success. And you've been amazing guests on The Drop-In CEO. I appreciate it. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Drop-In CEO. CEO podcast. My new book, The CEO's Compass, will change the way you think about leadership, navigate rapid transformation, and elevate the leaders of tomorrow. If you're feeling off track, the CEO's Compass assessment will guide you to peace of mind in days, not months. You can learn more about the CEO's Compass by visiting my website at dropinceo.com. Now go out and lead, inspire, and achieve your goals.